Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. As always, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm coming to you from the palatial home recording studios of the Corbett Report in the sunny climes of Western Japan. So once again, thank you for tuning in for this evening, the Friday night edition, as we bring Corbett Report Radio into the home stretch for another week. And I certainly hope you have enjoyed or at least found stimulating the podcast, the broadcasts from this week. I guess enjoy is a problematic word at the best of times, especially when we're dealing with the type of information we're dealing with here on the program. And if you have been listening in this week, you know that we've uh, covered an incredible amount of information, including, of course, last night with the headlines and Food World Order. Really covering so much information. And as I keep saying over and over, because it is really true... We have so much information to cover that it is impossible, absolutely impossible to cover it all. So it is quite amazing to sit back and think, even yesterday, for example, going through all of those different headlines from all around the world, we didn't even touch on one of the most important things happening in the world financially at the moment, the Eurozone disaster, the crisis that is unfolding for the citizens of Europe and threatening to plunge the world economy into some dire straits. And we will be going over this problem, taking a look at it, looking at its historical roots, and interrogating where we're going from here in tonight's edition of the broadcast. And it is certainly a nightmare that is unfolding in slow motion. It's like when you get into an accident or something Something of that sort, and the entire world goes into slow motion for that moment when your brain is still processing what's happening. Well, unfortunately, I think we are just in that moment right now, but it's about to escalate big time, as a lot of people are drawing attention to, especially this weekend, as some very important events start shaping up. And, for example, we have the Greek election coming up, most famously, on Sunday, And that's going to be a huge, huge, huge turning point in all of this to see which way the Greek electorate takes the country or is allowed to take the country. Because, of course, we saw what happened back uh, in 2011 when Papandreou floated the idea, the, the unthinkable idea that perhaps the Greek people should get a vote on the bailout. And, of course, he was immediately removed from office with suggestions that he was threatened behind the scenes. So we know how these games work. We know that if the Greek electorate seem to really be threatening the European mafia, they will likely just rub out the competition. So we'll have to see what happens. And there are signs, as we will see also later on in tonight's episode, that perhaps there are already people betting on the centrists getting to power and just more of the European status quo. But regardless of what happens in that vote on Sunday, it's probably quite unlikely that the European enterprise will come crashing to a halt on Monday, nor will it be suddenly restored and everything will be peachy keen. It's, as I say, still unfolding. And of course, all of the brouhaha around Greece that's going on right now and so much coverage of the Greek elections obscures some other important points, including a new another parliamentary election that's happening right now in France uh, as a follow-up to their presidential election which may or may not put the socialists into an absolute majority in Parliament, which would have some pretty severe ramifications for France and with now with their socialist president. 
And also, we have the uh, the ongoing Spanish uh, situation with Spain, of course, coming in Monday uh, with their hundred year hundred million euro bailout, but that not being nearly enough. And now, of course, all the people are starting to at least let on that they realize this. If I think they realized this from the beginning that a hundred million euro was not going to be enough. Spain really needing somewhere in the neighborhood of four hundred million to shore up their banking system but even then all it's doing is transferring the debt from the banksters to the people via the government where have we heard that before so a lot of ground to cover on tonight's broadcast i hope you'll stay with us here we are on republic broadcasting and we will be back with corbin report radio right after these messages Broadcast friends, so glad you could join us. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we are looking at the ways that the Euro Titanic is about to hit the shores of the Greek iceberg and what this really means for the world economy. And make no mistake, no matter where you are right now or how you're listening to my voice, there is no doubt that the ripple effects of what's happening in Europe right now will have uh, effects on all of us for a very long time. So it is a very, very important historical moment that we're living through, and we are here bearing testament to everything that's happening right now. And let's start tonight by taking a listen to a clip from a Sunday update video that I did back in 2010 about the European Union and the history behind it. Because once again, if we don't understand the history behind the creation of the European Union, What's to say that it won't happen again further down the road? And we have to understand the European Union and its Nazi and Bilderberg roots. So in order to help us understand that, let's take a listen to this Sunday Update video. It is up on YouTube. I will put the link in tonight's show notes. It's also on my 2010 video archive DVD. So without further ado, let's listen to Down with the European Union. More signs have emerged in recent weeks that the so-called superclass of well-connected globalist elites are concerned at the grassroots political opposition that threatens their plan to institute a totalitarian world government for the benefit of the ruling oligarchs. The latest round of hand-wringing on the part of the globalist controllers comes from an op-ed in the Bilderberg-owned and CIA-affiliated Washington Post in which Charles Kupchin, a senior fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations, laments that the European Union is faltering because of widespread opposition from populist political movements. Europe is experiencing a renationalization of political life, with countries clawing back the sovereignty they once willingly sacrificed in pursuit of a collective ideal, Kupchin writes in the opinion piece under the headline, As Nationalism Rises, Will the European Union Fall? For many Europeans, that greater good no longer seems to matter, Kupchin continues. They wonder what the Union is delivering for them, and they ask whether it is worth the trouble. What this op-ed and almost all other mainstream reportage on the EU fails to note is that the European Union enterprise was from its very inception the work of Nazis, business monopolists, inbred royalty, and the other rich, eugenics-obsessed social engineers of the Bilderberg Group who realized that totalitarian world government is the only way for them to implement their plans of total control over the population of Europe. Last year, a researcher named Adam Lieber uncovered a U.S. military intelligence file known as the Red House Report that detailed a meeting of top Nazi officials on August 10, 1944, in which a plan for the creation of a Fourth Reich 
based around a European common market, was discussed. The plan called for key Nazi officials and German industrialists to set up offshore front companies to be used as centers of influence in post-war Europe to lead the construction of a pan-European government. Ten years later, in 1954, the Bilderberg Group met for the first time in Oosterbeck, Holland. Co-founded by an ex-SS officer, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, the group discussed from its very inception the creation of a common European market and a single European currency. A BBC radio report on the Bilderbergers from 2003 reveals how every major European institution was founded by Bilderbergers. The conference papers show exactly what was discussed within the secret confines of Bilderberg. What's striking is the degree of consensus reached by those at the meeting on contentious topics like European integration. Here's another interesting... Um, it's another paper from the first one it's about the European Union it's interesting here saying some sort of European Union has long been a utopian dream but the conference was agreed that it is now a necessity <laughs> of our times <laughs> only in some form of union can the free nations of Europe achieve a moral and material strength capable of meeting any threat to their freedom so this is 50 years ago saying we must have a European Union in recent years however there has been growing awareness of the ulterior motives for the creation of this dictatorial, non-democratic Central European government. After the European co Constitution was voted down by French and Dutch voters in 2005, the Europeans rebranded it as the Lisbon Treaty and once again set about ratifying it, this time with even less input from actual European citizens. When the Irish voters voted down this sovereignty-destroying document, the Europeans, remarkably enough, made the Irish vote on the exact same treaty again, one year later. This time, after a joint Brussels-Dublin marketing campaign that broke the referendum laws of both Ireland and the European Union itself, the Irish were tricked into voting for the treaty. In another particularly notorious demonstration of the anti-democratic, authoritarian nature of the European Union, members of European Parliament walked out of a speech by Vaclav Klaus that was, ironically, addressing the European Parliament's unwillingness to listen to opposing views. But with the installation of the new president, Herman van Rompuy, who had himself attended a special Bilderberg meeting before being selected for the position in a completely opaque and non-democratic process, came renewed opposition to the European dictators in Brussels. Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party has been at the forefront of exposing the real backgrounds of the leading European bureaucrats. President, Mr. Barroso says, I think my team is of high quality. Well, let's conduct a human audit. Now, I'm mindful that audits aren't very popular in the European Commission, and that auditors, if they do their job properly, get fired, but nonetheless, here goes. From France, we have Mr. Jacques Barreau. He'll take on transport. In 2000, he received an eight-month suspended jail sentence for his involvement in an embezzlement case and was banned from holding public office for two years. From Hungary, we have Mr. Kovacs. He'll take on taxation. For many years, a communist apparatchik, a friend of Mr. Kadar, the dictator there, and an outspoken opponent of the values that we hold dear in the West. His new empire will produce <laughs> taxation policy and he'll look after the customs union from Cork across to Vilnius. Are the EPP and British Conservatives really going to vote for that? 
From, from Estonia, we have Mr. Kallas, for 20 years a Soviet party apparatchik until his newly acquired taste for capitalism got him into some trouble. Though, to be fair, he was acquitted of abuse and fraud, but convicted for providing false information, and he's going to be in charge of the anti-fraud drive. I mean, you couldn't make it up. From the UK, we've got Peter Mandelson. He'll take on the trade portfolio. He, of course, twice was removed uh, from the British government. Yet, to be fair, he's one of the more competent ones. <laughs> from the Netherlands, we've got Nelly Kroos. She'll take on uh, competition. She's accused of lying to the European Parliament. Now, these may only be allegations, but they're made by Mr. Van Boytenen, and I think should be listened to. Ask yourself a question. Would you buy a used car from this commission? <laughs> Uh, Nigel Farage, yes, indeed. Well, for those of you, once again, who are looking for the source of that video and want to continue watching it, it goes on for another several minutes. You can follow the link from the show notes for tonight's episode at corbettreport.com slash radio, where you will find the link to that video, or, of course, you can order the 2010 Video Archive DVD that includes that, as well as several other videos from 2010 that are worth having on DVD, once again, if, when, and however the uh, the internet apocalypse itself transpires. But of course, that at the end there, that was Nigel Farage, member of European Parliament, speaking in the European Parliament, which is a bizarre and, of course, completely autocratic institution. And that's something that Nigel Farage and the UK Independence Party take a great delight in pointing out at every twist, turn, and opportunity, and they do a great job doing so. So I would recommend to just even doing a, a general search for Nigel Farage and seeing some of the videos and speeches that he's made in the past on the European Union and how it really is. Well, it would be a laughing matter if it wasn't so serious, as we say so many times here on the broadcast. And uh, I do not, of course, vouch for every political uh, thought that Nigel Farage may have, and I certainly don't agree with himself, uh, the way he wets himself over the uh, phony Al-Qaeda boogeyman, etc. But certainly when it comes to the European Union and what it really represents, he does an excellent job of excoriating the banksters and the Bilderbergers who are really behind this project. So I think Nigel Farage is someone worth tuning into and listening when he gives those types of speeches. And on that very note, bringing things up to today, away from the Nazi Bilderberger roots and to what's actually happening in this day and age, we can go to a recent Nigel Farage speech in which he uh, memorably compared the euro to the Titanic and is saying that it's now hitting the iceberg, something that is absolutely undoubtedly undoubtedly true. And he talks about how the the Spanish 100 million euro bailout is itself a total and utter fraud. So, once again, let's listen to a clip, this time Nigel Farage speaking in the European Parliament this week about the effects of the Spanish bailout. You know, this deal makes things worse, not better. A hundred billion is put up for the Spanish banking system, and 20% of that money has to come from Italy. And under the deal, the Italians have to lend to the Spanish banks at 3%, but to get that money, they have to borrow on the markets at 7%. It's genius, isn't it? It really is brilliant. So what we're doing with this package is we're actually driving countries like Italy towards needing to be bailed out themselves. In addition to that, we put a further 10% on Spanish national debt, 
And I tell you, any banking analyst will tell you 100 billion doesn't solve the Spanish problem. It would need to be more like 400 billion. And with Greece teetering on the edge of Euro withdrawal, the real elephant in the room is that once Greece leaves, the ECB, the European Central Bank, is bust. It's gone. It has 444 billion euros worth of exposure to the bailed out countries. And to rectify that, you'll need to have a cash call from Ireland, Spain, Portugal, Greece and Italy. You couldn't make it up, could you? It is total and utter failure. This ship, the Euro Titanic, has now hit the iceberg and sadly there simply aren't enough lifeboats. Friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Here we are documenting the European apocalypse that is descending across that continent and, of course, once again, making the people pay for the sins of their bankster and would-be leaders in puppet governments and undemocratic institutions like the EU in Brussels. And unfortunately, yes, once again, it is the people who are paying for all of this. And this is something that we've talked about at great length on the Corbett Report in many different works in the past, but most especially in our weekly conversations with the dearly departed late great Bob Chapman of the International Forecaster. And this was a subject that Bob and I were covering, as I say, in great painstaking detail for the past year or two at the very least, and something that Bob spoke a lot about and spoke quite eloquently and passionately about because I think he understood from his time in Europe exactly what the consequences of all of this were. So let's listen to an interview that I conducted with Bob Chapman back on 19th of March 2012 about the European Armageddon. From a financial standpoint, they cannot continue to do what they're doing. I mean, you can't bail out Spain and Italy for $14. You just don't have it. You print it, you've got inflation. Uh, Europe is very, very negative on inflation, much more than anyone else that is tolerated, but they don't. And they're looking for 2%, 2%, a real percent. And so they strive towards that end. Uh, They're not going to get that. How can you get that when... The European Central Bank System lent $1.4 trillion by the Federal Reserve. 800 banks took that money down. 800 banks. Now, all of them aren't bankrupt, but a lot of them are. And this supposedly bolsters their balance sheet. And, of course, they're all carrying two sets of books and the whole game that is played but I think down, down the line here, uh, we're going to see Greece, the money that they're going to receive in the second bailout is hardly enough to make a difference. They're going to get another bailout, and that's not going to come. And so the next step is Greece will go down and default, 
and they'll be followed by Ireland and Portugal. And it's probably a good thing for the Eurozone uh, participants because they don't want to pay for them anyway. And so I think that's where it's headed. And then the big choice comes, do we keep the euro among the, quote, stronger group of nations, or do we go back to our own currencies? And I think probably they'll go back to their own currencies. Having what one would call a northern euro is possible. Um, is it probable? I don't think so. I think Germany wants to go on their own way. I, I think they want to be their own man, so to speak. And that's been coming for a long time. It's been over 60 years since the Second World War. Uh, they paid their dues after the war, I think. Of course, I guess in war, nothing can, ever gets really paid. And I think you all know what I mean. But I, I think where that's uh, going uh, is, to, uh, is to a breakup of the euro. And that would put those who want world government in an even more defensive position. The only two options is they, they either get to find a way to fix it up so it functions, the financial situation in Europe, or they're going to have a war. And now it's being talked about in the terms that I'm talking about. Lots more people are saying, gee, you know, they did have all these wars, and uh, that's probably the reason why. And you have more and more people talking about it. So I think if you put it all together, you'll see that the most fortuitous and easy way out is to go back to your own currencies, sort out your own debt, do your own thing, and uh, what trade arrangements they can arrange is up to them. There may be none. I mean, Germany's had tremendous advantages. And I think that's going to come to an end, and I think they know that. Uh, they think they can make it on their own, and they probably can. So, I think we've got to look forward to in Europe is an immediate end to the dream of world government. Uh, they've blown it. The whole underside structure of the edifice of the world government has not worked. Uh, one interest rate fits all. No constitution. The disbursement of people among different nations from other nations, virtually none. It's been a natural association of people who have nothing in common with one another, except perhaps commerce. And that's it. So it's coming. And it's not the first time they failed. And it's not the last time unless we can remove their control of the financial area worldwide.
Welcome back to the program, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And tonight we've been going over some of the background, the greater political context of the European Union crisis and the crisis of the Eurozone in particular that we've seen unfolding before us through the headlines and what uh, what nightmarish headlines they've been, especially as of late. So we have, for example, from CBS News, economically sound Germany at risk if Greece falters. Wall Street Journal has world braces for test of euro. Bloomberg is talking about Greek candidates make final pleas before vote with euro at stake. BBC News says Greek election is euro versus drachma, Samara says. And we have also from Bloomberg, Spain grazing junk status fuels contagion risk, euro credit. We also have this one, uh, perhaps somewhat uh, not not uh, not exactly predictable, not something that we would necessarily expect, but something that's happening nonetheless. Euro rises against dollar ahead of Greek vote. That from MercuryNews.com. And just as a small taste of the fact that, of course, this extends outside of the eurozone itself, we have from New York Times, Britain is outside eurozone, but not euro crisis. And I think we could institute a lot of other countries into that uh, headline besides America, even Japan. Pretty much wherever you are in the world, I think you are going to be economically and financially affected by what takes place in Europe, especially in the coming days, as so much of the world's attention is now focused on Greece and the Greek vote, because it does have some very wide-ranging consequences. And perhaps, potentially, the crashing down of the European Union will be the end of the globalists' dream of instituting their totalitarian world government, but I wouldn't count on it. I'm sure they'll have always have different ways and means up their sleeve uh, to pull out at any moment to try to convince people that their agenda is still the best one. And when they can't convince people with reason, they will use force, which of course is exactly what governments are, exactly what they do and how they function, and it is the very nature of government itself. Government is force, so it cannot be reasoned with. And unfortunately, the globalists who see their dream of totalitarian world government cannot really be reasoned with either. So this is a debate of ideas, and let's start getting into the nitty-gritty details of what's happening and unfolding in the Eurozone right now. And in order to do that, I'm going to read for you exclusively here on the air from my article for this week's International Forecaster, which is also included in my weekly newsletter to Corbett Report subscribers. So if you are not yet a subscriber, you can go to CorbettReport.com slash support to find details of how you can sign up for the weekly newsletter for as little as 100 Japanese yen a month. That's just over $1 a month. You will get four newsletters or five, depending how many weeks in that particular month, delivered to your email inbox. And once a month, I put out a subscriber-only video. Uh, so this week's a subscriber newsletter will be going out in the next few hours, as it's already Saturday for me here in Japan, and the newsletters go out on Saturday. So you look forward to that, and if you are uh, if you are not subscribed yet, I suggest you do. But let's read from the editorial from this week's newsletter. It's called Market Markets Price in Spailout and Grexit, and it is for internationalforecaster.com and subscribers to the Corbett Report. You've heard of the dead cat bounce. How about the dying cat bounce? This is essentially what happened on Thursday afternoon, with the Dow up 1.24% on the day, the S&P up 1.08%, and the energy sector in particular up 1.7%. 
As of press time on Friday, European markets were also up across the board, from the DAX up 0.5% to the CAC up 0.7% and the FTSE up 0.4%. Were the markets responding to positive manufacturing numbers? No. Hopeful employment statistics? Uh Uh-uh. A new agreement that satisfies all parties at the Eurozone table? Fat chance. No, markets were pricing in the funny money that central banks across the globe have promised to flood the system with in the event of the next stage of the euro collapse. That's right, just like a junkie responding to the promise of his next hit, the markets are perking up at the prospect of the billions in liquidity that will be injected into the system if and when Greek voters decide to tell the EU and IMF where to stick their bailout agreement and its austerity conditions. This is yet another demonstration of the elementary concept of inflation, with the markets merely pricing in the likely consequences of fresh streams of hot-off-the-press central bank funds finding its way into the stock market. More money chasing the same amount of goods means that money is worth less, and the price of everything, stocks included, will go up. But since the public has been taught to see the markets in simplistic terms, green means healthy economy, red means economic trouble, The bought-and-paid-for talking heads in the financial press will spin this as a positive sign that the Eurozone crisis is stabilizing and that the markets are reflecting investor positivity about the G20's ability to deal with whatever problems are on the horizon. As always, the real devil is in the details. The uptick comes on the heels of news that country after country is already planning for the apocalypse. The BOE has promised £100 billion for the British banking system. Bernanke has made comments suggesting Operation Twist may be extended at the Fed's meeting next week, or QE3 may finally begin in earnest, as this publication has been predicting for months. The BOJ is set to keep its monetary policy unchanged, but have their 40 trillion yen asset buying scheme up their sleeve, a program they can expand if an injection of liquidity is needed. An anonymous G20 official has now been quoted as saying that central bankers around the world are preparing for coordinated actions in the event of a crash. The worries center on Greece, which sees its much-anticipated election take place this Sunday. The political and banking establishment are terrified that Alexis Tsipras and his hard-left Syriza party will break the political deadlock in the wake of May's indecisive election and take charge of the Greek parliament. Syriza has promised to put a halt to EU IMF-mandated austerity programs if it gets into office, and the specter of a Greek pullout from the euro has been raised. This is anathema to the Brussels Eurocrats, who realize it's getting harder to paint their EU pipe dream as the land of milk and honey they so desperately want people to believe it is. This is also, of course, the perfectly predictable result of throwing together dozens of historically distinct economies, peoples, and cultures in a haphazard union, without so much as giving them a vote on the matter. You cannot tie sinking ships like Greece, Italy, and Ireland to the SS Germany and hope that the whole mess will stay afloat forever. Instead, in the memorable words of UKIP MEP Nigel Farage, the Euro-Titanic has now hit the iceberg, and sadly, there simply aren't enough lifeboats. But the Grexit is itself being complicated by the spailout, After weeks of ineffectual, blatantly false reassurances that Spain wouldn't need a bailout at all, the Spanish government went cap-in-hand to the EU mafia to muster up 100 billion euros to shore up its banking system. The problem? That's not nearly enough, and everyone knows it. 
The Spanish banking system is in dire straits and will require closer to 400 billion euros to prevent collapse, and the 100 billion stopgap measure isn't fooling anyone, least of all investors. So after a dead cat bounce that lasted literally a few hours after the bailout announcement, markets plunged once again last Monday. The other problem? Unlike Greece, Ireland, or other economies of the, on the financial periphery of the Eurozone economy, Spain cannot fail. If Spain defaulted or suffered a banking sec- sector collapse, it is large enough to take the rest of Europe with it. The other other problem? The bailouts do nothing to solve the underlying problem. As Spain cracks the 7% barrier for its 10-year treasuries, all the 100 billion euro recapitalization does is shift the burden from the banks to the government and, ultimately, puts the people on the line for the sins of the banksters. Where have we heard that before? The other, other, other problem? The Spanish bailout came with no austerity strings attached, giving the Greeks even further leverage to renegotiate their own bailout. None of this makes the Grexit a foregone conclusion, though. The latest news as of press time is that Greek bank stocks are soaring ahead of Sunday's election. This means one of three things. Investors are trading on secret polls. Greek law prevents the publishing of poll outcomes ahead of the election, showing the pro-bailout centrists in the lead. Investors are running a pump and dump on the markets, trying to convince others that the centrists are in the lead so they can dump at the market top ahead of a Syriza win. Or investors are trying to convince the markets and the public that the centrists will win as a way of swaying voter sentiment ahead of the election. Given the efficacy of the centrist parties in recent weeks in playing on public jitters about exiting the euro, it seems most likely that some centrist faction or coalition willing to play ball with Berlin will come to power. But no matter what government is formed, Greece will continue to be a basket case for the foreseeable future. Another summer of rage on the streets of Athens is a distinct possibility. Meanwhile, the French are back to the polls this weekend as well, this time for their second round of voting in the parliamentary elections. Given first-round results, the possibility of the socialists taking an absolute majority is still on the table, and a socialist-green coalition majority is almost certain, barring some major upset. This sets up newly elected President Hollande to be in one of the strongest positions of any of the European leaders, and confirms the right turn that Europe appears to be making from Eurocratic austerity to Eurocratic Keynesianism. As we pointed out before, the same EU agenda underlies both mindsets, so the prospect of jointly issued Eurobonds for infrastructure projects or greater powers for the EU bailout mechanism cannot be seen as a true threat to the system. Quite the contrary. The Eurocrats and banksters are set to win either way. Okay, I'll stop reading at that point. The article does go on from that point to talk about U.S. elections and the U.S. uh, 2012 selection between Obama and Romney, or is that Obama and Obamney, whatever you want to call them. They are uh, two of a kind, but uh, I'll leave it there. And we are, of course, concentrating on the EU crisis here, which, as that article, I hope, makes clear, does have some very big consequences for the global economy as a whole. Once again, you can get that whole article from the subscriber-only newsletter, which you can sign up for at corbettreport.com support. But let's just pick up on a few of the points in the threads from that article, starting with the last one there about the French election, which is also taking place this weekend. And by the way, there's also an Egyptian election taking place this weekend. 
And as Egypt continues to just evolve back into military dictatorship, which it has always been and always uh, will be until the people actually identify the real roots of the power system there, well, probably uh, not a lot is going to change in Egypt this weekend. But in France, uh, it looks like that the socialists have a very good chance of coming to total power in France over both the, uh, the the parliament and the presidency. And that puts President Hollande in a very, very strong position. And anyone who's been keeping track of uh, the French elections and what that means will know that Hollande is supposed to be the savior of Europe, who's coming along to speak out against the uh, the austerity that's been being proposed for the last few years by the EU slash IMF amalgam monstrosity that's been governing European politics and has been forcing, well, countries like Greece into uh, total riot and uh, flames. But uh, but here we have Hollande, who's going to be the Eurocratic savior. He's going to come and propose uh, growth instead of austerity. And uh, of course, growth really is just Keynesianism and is just the idea that if you just create enough money at the top, it'll all just filter down and everyone will be happy and living in the land of milk and honey. And there are some different ideas about how to do this. For example, Hollande has talked about the idea of jointly issued euro bonds that will be uh, issued for joint infrastructure projects between, of course, the countries in the eurozone who are actually capable of funding something like that. So we're looking at France and Germany as the uh, as the key to that and we'll see if and when and how that happens or he's also talked about giving the uh, European Central Bank and the uh, the bailout mechanism itself more power to act within individual countries uh, doing an end run around the governments to inject funds directly into the banking sector which is another step along that road. Wow, it turns out that Holland is the savior who's going to just ensure that the EU continues to gain more and more and more power over the individual economies of each individual nation, so that it turns out that whether you vote for the austerity-minded uh, Eurocrats or the Keynesian-minded Eurocrats, you're still getting a Eurocrat who believes that the EU is the system that has to underlie all of this, and it's the, uh, it's the f- future of the EU they're concerned with. It doesn't particularly matter which, uh, which side of the coin they're, they're on. It's still an EU coin, and they're still f- fighting for it with all of their, their might. So ultimately, what we're just seeing is different, different uh, competing management arms competing for a management of the same company, which is EU Inc., and they're not going to come together to uh, to do anything that would threaten that, jeopardize that, or throw that off the table. And we saw, for example, what happened to Papandreou after he tried to give the uh, the Greek people a say in the bailouts. Well, he was thrown out on his keister mighty quick. And then we saw the bail in, bail in the, uh, the parachuting in of people like uh, Super Mario and Mario Monti and all of these people in Europe who are supposed to be the uh, the technocrats who are going to save the day. Well, now we've got the uh, the growth-minded President Hollande who's supposed to save the day by issuing joint EU bonds, etc. And as we say, all this does is prop up the EU system itself, which is from its inception and from its very idea doomed to fail. And rightfully so, because the answer, of course, is decentralization of power. It is not centralization of power. The answer to the failings of Brussels is not to make Brussels even stronger. That's stupidity. That's ridiculous. If you argued that in any other aspect of your life, oh, I failed so badly at this, what you have to do is give me more money, more power, and more time to fail even worse. 
That wouldn't work in your personal life. It wouldn't work at your job. It wouldn't work anywhere else. But for some reason, with government, it always comes back to this. Yes, we failed miserably, and everything is in flaming tatters, and it's probably all going to collapse. So you have to give us more money, more time, and more power to make things even worse. And uh, this has happened so often, so often in the last decade, let alone centuries, that I think people should be awake to this problem now and understand that the answer is not to give the EU more power. But unfortunately, uh, once again, we've seen with the media consolidation, we understand just how much power these people have to put across their message at the expense of messages like the one that I'm giving you. So we have to fight back against this European Union consolidation. And once again, whether you're in America or Canada or Japan or wherever you are in the world, this does affect you. Central banks around the world are getting ready to inject hundreds of billions of dollars of funny money paper into their economies to battle whatever might fall out from the EU after this week's uh, elections. So we're seeing some huge, huge tectonic shifts taking place and some big preparations being made for some... Well, Euro Armageddon, and uh, and I'm not sure that that's sensationalism or hyperbole. I think we really are staring over the edge of the precipice. On that note, let's come back to wrap things up here on Corbett Report Radio right after this break. delicate spider's web the globalists managed to weave for us, isn't it? Because when you think about it, as always, with all of their best laid plans, it involves failure. They always plan failure into the system so that they can use the momentum that comes from the panic generated by that failure to make the system even more effective. It is an insidious idea in oh so many ways. All right, welcome back to the final minutes of tonight's broadcast as we have been documenting the apocalypse, the Eurozone crisis that is unfolding and seems set to come to a head of some sort or other this weekend with the Greek vote and then the Spanish continuing bailout, which will undoubtedly be necessary if they do want to prop up their banking sector. And when you look at it from the Spanish perspective or the European perspective, of course they want to back up their their banking sector. If they don't, it's going to lead to a knock-on effect that will threaten to take down economies all across Europe. And of course, that would have a knock-on effect on economies all across the globe. So it really is a spider web. And if you destroy one little part of it, the whole thing threatens to fall apart. And that is the insidious nature of it. We have to, once they've created and spun this web around us, we have to try to protect it. Otherwise, it's going to be chaos and disorder for everyone. And no one wants that, do they? Well, unfortunately, we've been inserted into this globalist regional government system for so long now that it is becoming part of the fabric, part of the DNA of the global economy. And the longer that that happens, the harder it'll be to cut ourselves out of that. 
and unfortunately, it's painful for everyone involved. So what is the answer? Of course, the answer, once again, is to start building up local alternative community currencies, building up local co-ops and uh, exchanges, community gardens, building up the system that will be the alternative so that if and when they threaten to pull the rug out completely and send the global economy plunging into the netherworld, we can say, too bad for you, we already have our system. And rest assured, we are a long, long way from that point, and there is a lot of work to be done, and it is not easy work by any means, but we have to start doing it in whatever way we can, even if it is something as simple as growing some vegetables in your backyard, or whatever the way it is that you can start to get yourself invested in this because we are facing some very, very bleak times indeed, friends, and we will only be able to pull through it together. So as community continues to disintegrate around us and the societal collapse takes place along with the economic collapse, again, exactly as designed, we have to fight back in the only way we can, not by fighting physically, but by simply engineering the system that will be the alternative. I'll leave you on that note, friends, but once again, I would like to remind all of you that I will be moving to the 9 p.m. Central time slot as of next week, two hours earlier than the current live schedule, so I hope you'll be able to join me there. It has been my great pleasure and honor to be speaking to you these last several months here in this very late night uh, slot, and it has been quite a ride so far, so I hope that in the earlier slot it will continue to be interesting, and I hope you'll continue to join us Of course, if you're not able to tune in live for whatever reason, of course, you can always find all of these uh, episodes of the broadcast archived in the RBN RBN archives available to RBN members. And, of course, the show notes and all of those details are all archived on CorbettReport.com slash radio. So once again, thank you so much for listening, friends. I'm very much looking forward to another set of Get Interesting Guests and Interesting Views next week. I hope you'll be able to join me for that. Until then, thank you for listening and take care. Thank you.